Hello, welcome to Behind the Knife. What follows is a conversation on bariatric emergencies, primarily geared towards the general and acute care surgeon. Uh, this is with myself, Jason Bingham, I'm a bariatric surgeon, and John McClellan, who's a trauma and critical care surgeon. Uh, it turned out to be a really great conversation, but turned out to be a little bit longer than we anticipated, so we, we broke it up into two parts. So what follows is part one, and with uh, next week, we will follow up with part two. So enjoy. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, we have two of the original founders of Behind the Knife today. I'm Jason. Uh, I'm here with John, and today we are discussing uh, bariatric emergencies uh, for uh, the general surgeon. So John, why is this important? Yeah. So if you become a general surgeon and you don't do bariatric specifically, uh, you'll start to see these patients come into your ER and clinic and you should understand what things could go wrong. So one thing is that the prevalence of these bariatric patients in the community who have undergone the surgery will continue to grow with time and especially in the elderly population. Yeah, exactly. So if you're pulling call out there, I don't care if you're, if you're a, a, a trauma surgeon, critical care, uh, colorectal surgeon, you're going to be seeing bariatric surgeons or bariatric patients coming through your ER. So it's really important to know this. One thing I, I can, can't highlight enough is, is that everybody just has to have a general understanding of the anatomy. So, uh, you know, know the general anatomy of the different procedures, the bypass versus the sleeve versus the duodenal switch, um, at least for your ASMBS endorsed procedures, know the anatomy for those because they're the most common ones you're going to be seeing. Yeah, there's some other historical ones that uh, you, you may need to, to, to look up if you have a patient that comes with one of those historical procedures, but just have a general idea. If you have the opportunity to, to look at prior offer reports. That's incredibly important because a bypass isn't a bypass. It's going to depend whether it's anti-colic or retrocolic. You're going to want to know the details. So if you have access to those operative reports when these patients come in, it's crucially important that you read through those and really understand the anatomy. The next thing why it's important to understand the bariatric complications specifically is to determine what big things could go wrong. So you want to kind of delegate these patients into emergent, urgent versus routine. Uh, and is this something that I have to deal with right now? Is there potential bowel at risk? Or can I get them to a bariatric surgeon or maybe their own bariatric surgeon to help deal with this problem? Yeah, absolutely. And it's also important to realize that just because they're a bariatric patient, they still get the normal things. I, I actually had a, a couple weeks ago, I had a patient come of, of my own that has had some revisional work done and came into the emergency room and, you know, everybody was kind of, what's going on now? It was straightforward acute appendicitis. It was a five-minute case. So don't forget that bariatric patients are also susceptible to those normal surgical problems, appendicitis, diverticulitis, cholecystitis. And, and so don't, don't, don't overcomplicate things or overthink things. Uh, so with that, let's, let's dive into some specific complications. Uh, what, what, what should we handle first, John? Yeah. So, you know, you're the bariatric surgeon between the two of us. So, you know, I think the first thing, I think we start with the ones we've been seeing complications for years with. So the gastric bands, they have, you know, an overall a complication rate about 42% um, and then a reoperation rate of 36%. Jason, can you walk me through some of the complications of the bands? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, gastric bands are very common. They've been we've been doing gastric bands for for decades now. Doing less of them now for those specific reasons that you talk about that they do have a relatively high complication rate and reoperation rate. 
there are still people out there doing them. I don't personally do them. I take out a lot of gastric bands. I don't put any in, but there are still people uh, that are doing gastric bands in the United States. And certainly there's a lot of people walking around with gastric bands in place. So we need to know how to deal with them. So what can go wrong with a gastric band? So we can have band slippage, band erosion. Um, we can have PO intolerance, worsening reflux. Uh, you can have kind of a chronic esophageal outlet obstruction that results in some esophageal demotility disorders. Um, and you can also have dilation of that, of that gastric pouch that can cause some problems. Of all those things I listed, really the only urgent emergent thing is that slipped band. The rest of the things generally don't present as a surgical emergency, and those can be handled um, by a bariatric surgeon in a semi-elective setting. So, just, yeah. Just a little background on that. Yeah. Can you tell me about like what different gastric bands out there? Actually, I didn't even know there were multiple different types of gastric bands. Yeah, so there uh, are a lot of different types of gastric bands. Really, the two most common ones you're going to see in the United States are the lap band brand or the realize band, which, um, you know, are, are a silicone based band. Um, uh, but there are certainly historically, especially if you had patients that had procedures done maybe back in the you know 80s, early 90s uh, of a lot of different types of materials. Uh, Marlix mesh, Dacron, PTFE have all been used to, to wrap uh, the stomach and, and create a band. Uh, there's vertical banded gastroplasties. There's some of these historical procedures that are going to alter the anatomy a little bit. So uh, those are, like you say, hey, if you don't know what they had, if, you, if, if they know the name of the procedure, you can easily Google that and kind of get an idea for the anatomy and what was used. That's important because these different material, materials are going to react with the tissue differently. So, the, you know, something that's silicone is going to have less scar tissue is probably going to be easier for you to deal with surgically than something like a Marlex mesh or Dacron that's going to be heavily integrated into those tissues and maybe is going to be a little bit more difficult to, to, uh, to adjust or deal with. Um, again, the two FDA approved ones in the U.S. are the Realize Band and Lap Band. Understandably, I've, I'm sure we've all seen patients that have had bariatric procedures done in other countries um, and then come to the United States with their complications. So it's important to, to, to know how to deal with those. So, yeah, first understand the type of band. And really, we, if somebody comes in to, to, with you for a, a, for a band problem, the first step you're going to need to want to do is to deflate that band. So get a Huber needle find their port and just take out all the fluid in it. You know, that's going to relieve that obstruction. That's going to relieve that pressure potentially that is causing, you know, a pressure necrosis or something like that. So that's typically going to be your first step. And then you want to assess. So, um, you know, let's, let's talk, I, I said, you know, for really the for only emergency that you'll have to deal with um, for the most part as a non-bariatric surgeon is that slipped gastric band. So, that's when the gastric fundus slips above the band and causes a gastric outlet obstruction and potential ischemia. So again, you want to immediately decompress that band. And that is a patient that should get emergent or urgent exploration and band removal, especially if you're worried about gastric necrosis. There's a couple different ways to evaluate these if you're, to, if you're concerned about a band slippage. The patient comes in with some epigastric pain, some, some PO intolerance um, on imaging, uh, you can start with a plain radiograph, and we talk about the phi angle. Um, you'll read different things about about different being under between four and you know 57, 58 degrees uh, on your phi angle. Um, I like to think of it more as like a clock face. So if you're looking at your your plain radiograph, 
your orientation should really be in like a two o'clock to seven o'clock or two o'clock to eight o'clock position of that gastric band. If it slips down to where now you're looking at a clock place and you're drawing a line between 11 and four, um, that's concerned about for a slip band. If you're looking at an O, the O sign, so you're looking at it kind of on FOSS and it's not a line, but instead a circle in an AP radiograph, that's another concern for a lap band, a slip lap band. And then, of course, the CT scan can can help you, especially if you're concerned about uh, about ischemia. So, Jason, for the board specifically, or people, a lot of people on this podcast that take tests, like what should we be looking for in like a a test question to be concerned that this is a slip band? Like they, they always say angles. I remember this from absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So, if uh, again, the patient's presentation, so they have a lap band, they come in with some PO intolerance, some epigastric pain. Uh, and they'll probably give you a plane radiograph and they'll, the, the angle will be high. So, you know, they'll say the angle, uh, your, your phi angle is, you know, I don't know, 75 degrees, something, something like that. Um, and, and so that would be, uh, indicative of a, of a lap band or of a slip lap band, or they probably these days are probably going to show you an image, um, of, of uh, either a plane radiograph, probably a plane radiograph. Uh, and again, it, you're not going to, you don't have calipers there on your screen or test screen. That's why I think looking at the clock face is actually better. Two to seven, that looks good. If it, it slipped down and you're looking 11 to four, so just picture a clock face, draw a hand between 11 and four o'clock. Um, and that, that looks like a, that would be uh, concerning for a, a slipped band. Okay. And then like, how do we manage these patients then? So again, uh, first step, get your Huber needle. Um, Huber needle is important and, and uh, immediately decompress that band if you can. And if you're concerned about slap band, this is, a, this is a surgical emergency. So this is something that I think, you know, you're not always gonna have a bariatric surgeon. This is something a general surgeon should need to know. So immediate ex- exploration and band removal. So once you get in there, uh, you kind of have to assess what you're dealing with. This is why it's also important to know what kind of band is put in there. So know what you're getting into. When you're doing your dissection, the first thing to really kind of appreciate is that that medial zone is your safety zone. So along that lesser curve, stay away from the greater curve. If you think about the way that these are created, where you're creating that gastropexy out there laterally, you don't want to, and especially you're dealing with friable tissues, you don't want to do anything that's going to uh, that's going to affect the blood supply to that. So you, you want to be sure to preserve the blood supply to that lateral segment. Um, and you don't want to accidentally cause uh, an injury to the stomach at that gastropexy. So start immediately. That's your safety zone. Identify the band um, uh, using either a hook or, or a harmonic um, to clear off that band. Um, and uh, sometimes you can unhook the buckle or you can just cut it with some endo shears um, and get that band out of there. And then assess the tissue. So... This is one instance where, or one of those instances where you kind of have to let things declare themselves. So you may get in there and things look purple and things look blue. And once you get that gastric band out of there, don't go crazy dissecting out that hiatus and start start resecting a bunch of tissue because you might get yourself into, you know, too deep and do more damage than good. Uh, Sometimes you'll want to just take the band out and just, uh, if the patient's stable and things are questionable, come come back and look the next day. So uh, do a second look. Do a second look laparoscopy and see how those tissues, you may be surprised. The, the stomach is a very resilient organ. You may be surprised uh, at what's going to come back. Now, if things are black or perforated and obviously necrotic, then, then you have to deal with it. So, so um, 
how, how do we do that? So we can, we can use uh, endoscopy um, and to identify the extent of where the necrosis is. And you may be able to get able to perform either a wedge or a sleeve resection of that necrotic tissue. Um, you may need, it may require some type of resection and reconstruction. Um, if the patient's stable and you're comfortable doing that resection or reconstruction, depending on what tissues are involved, that's fine. If unstable, resection with a venting gastrostomy or an NG2 placed proximally, and then a, di a distal feeding gastrostomy. And then you come back and fight another day. Once that patient's stable, um, several weeks down the road, you can come back and deal with your reconstruction, whatever that may entail. So especially for, you know, this is this is real life advice, but even for a board scenario, if, if you get in there and there's a perforation and tissues are black and patients are stable, the answer is resection and temporized, proximal venting gastrostomy um, and uh, distal feeding gastrostomy. So two gastrostomies. And I guess the one thing that, you know, I always remember from taking these out before is just make sure you have all the band parts at the end of it all too. Uh, not Maybe not as out of concern if you're, you know, this is an emergent procedure, but you want to make sure you have everything on the back table and it all puts together correctly. Absolutely. Because you're cutting things, you're going to cut the tubing, you're going to cut the band. I have been part of risk management uh, committee meetings with uh, uh, pieces of gastric bands that were left behind in the abdomen. So yeah, assemble that thing on the back table. And that's also another reason why it's important to know what you're dealing with going into. Know what type of band you have, know what it's supposed to look like, know what all the components are so that you can confirm you get everything out of the body. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, moving on to the next one, maybe not as emergent, but gastric band erosion. Uh, this is something that, you know, really presents as like a surgical emergency, but something that a general surgeon will often have to deal with. Yeah, it sounds that is you're absolutely right. So it sounds bad, right? A gastric band erosion. Um, and, you know, sometimes you'll get your you know, kind of urgent calls about this thing. This is rarely ever. This didn't happen overnight. The band didn't erode uh, into the stomach overnight. It probably happened over a course of months or even years. So it's not an emergency for the generally rarely presents as an acute problem or it's like a, a, you know, free perforation or anything like that. So patients typically present with apogastric pain. So the, the ones I've seen, it's almost like you suspect, sus, you suspect like a ulcer or, or a marginal ulcer or those type of things. Uh, or uh, classically on the boards is, you know, that isolated port side infection. So a port side infection is, is, is kind of, is a sign of a, of a uh, gastric erosion um, or, some type of leak in the band system. So you fill the band and nothing happens or you go to drain the band. And there's no fluid in it anymore. So uh, when it comes to, yeah, you really have to kind of deal with these ind individually on uh, how much is eroded, what type of band it is. Again, those, those silicon bands are a lot easier to deal with than any of these older kind of Marlex bands that are, are uh, that are incorporated into the tissues. Um, you can deal with them expectantly, you know, if they're not really having any symptoms, um, you don't necessarily really have to do anything about it. Uh, surgical removal. Um, so uh, you have to be careful with that, right? So the, the, the band is eroding inside. And then if you go and kind of open up over the band and take it out that way, now you've created a connection. So uh, with these uh, silicon bands, uh, a lot of times what you'll do is you'll make a distal gastrotomy and remove it from inside, go in and pull it in from the inside and then staple closed your gastrotomy um, uh, or endoscopic removal. So uh, if, if you're comfortable with advanced endoscopy or you have an advanced endoscopist, uh, you, a lot of times you can go and cut these. There's instruments that you can use, endoscopic instruments to cut these bands and remove them from the inside and, and, and pull them out through the lumen. 
there are some kind of more, con you know, newer, more controversial stuff. Some people actually put stents in to induce necrosis of the band and have it migrate in so that it's more amenable to endoscopic retrieval. But that's really beyond the, the, the scope of this talk that you're not going to be dealing with that as a general surgeon. Big thing to know is really, uh, you know, these these are if the patient is stable, this isn't an emergency. Um, you know, understand the band. If you're comfortable with some of these different retrieval removal uh, options, fine, go for it. Otherwise, get that patient to a bariatric surgeon. Yeah, you know, and just to reiterate what you might see uh, clinically as well as on a potential test is you're going to have that patient that comes in and that port site is is obviously infecting, it's red, and it's because that erosion is tracking out through the, uh, through into the port and that's what's causing problems and that's a classic question on the test too. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, generally I've seen that show up on the written boards and on the ab site um, is that you have a, the, the, a patient that shows up with a, a port side infection and, and uh, they ask you kind of what to do or what the issue is going on. So yeah, classic. Okay. So moving on from gastric band specifically, you know, I think this is one of the, um, one of the major issues in bariatric surgery and something bariatric surgeons have to deal with for a long term, uh, especially in patients who have these risk factors, but marginal ulcers, Jason, tell me about marginal ulcers. Yeah, marginal ulcers are very common. So you stop to think about it. When you give somebody a, a, a bariatric anatomy or a gastric bypass anatomy, you're bringing up the small intestine um, and you're, you're hooking it you know, directly to the stomach. Um, so you're bringing up um, you know, the jejunum your gastric jejunostomy, the ulceration is generally on that jejunal side. So now you have tissue that isn't used to seeing uh, high acid output, and now they are. In addition to that, uh, the, the, you know, there's anatomic or technical things that can contribute to the formation of, of, of marginal ulcers. Either that anastomosis is, is under a little bit of tension, uh, there's some relative ischemia at that staple line. This all sets people up for marginal ulcers. And then if they do anything on top of that, that's going to, that's, that's that sometimes, you know, we're our own as patients are their own worst enemies, uh, NSAID use or specifically smoking, they're, they're going to get um, uh, marginal ulcers. So we do some things to try and prevent this, uh, those technical things I was talking about, no tension, making sure that the staple line is well perfused and then patient placing patients on post-op PPI therapy. Uh, but you know, we still see a decent rate of, of marginal ulcer and that's just, uh, that's just the nature of things. So the treatment, if it's non-acute, right? So if we just have a patient that we see on endoscopy that has marginal ulcers, or they're coming in with some epigastric pain and some, uh, some ulcer type symptoms is well, number one to reverse that inciting agent. So if they're smoking, they have to have to stop smoking. If they don't stop smoking, they're going to, they're going to have a perforation. They're going to have a bad outcome. It's just, uh, it's just a recipe for disaster. Uh, and said uh, cessation, you know, again, the, treat these like you would anybody else who comes with an ulcer, test them for H pylori, treat them for H pylori. Um, if there's something, you know, every once in a while, uh, we're, we see this less and less, but you'll have like a permanent suture or something that was used at the creation of this gastrogenostomy and that's serving for anitis. And sometimes you can remove those, those, um, those permanent sutures uh, endoscopically. That's, that's kind of rare these days. And a lot of people, most people aren't using permanent sutures uh, at their, at their GJs anymore. Um, open capsule PPI therapy um, and you know, a cytoprotective barrier. Um, so sucroflate, something like that. Um, and, and repeat endoscopy. Um, so again, uh, in the non-acute setting, you basically treat it like you would uh, a, a high acid output producing uh, peptic or duodenal ulcer. 
Okay. And now, you know, that was a marginal ulcer by itself is not an emergent issue, but now we're moving into something now it is emergent. So perforated marginal ulcers. Yeah. Okay. So let's deal with this. So perforated marginal ulcers. So this typically happens, um, you know, within the first two years post-op, but it can occur anytime. Um, all, you know, all those same things we said, you know, uh, the, the majority of patients I see with perforated marginal ulcer are, are, you know, smokers or NSAID users. So there's a very strong uh, correlation and risk factor with smoking. This is why, you know, we really put patients through the ringer and, and test them for nicotine and all these things before doing bariatric surgery. They have to have to stop smoking. Um, so when this, when, and this is something that you're probably gonna have to deal with as a general surgeon just out there in the community, especially as more and more people are walking out there with this anatomy. So resuscitate broad spectrum antibiotics plus an antifungal and PPI, just as you would for any type of perforated, you know, like a perforated duodenal ulcer. Um, and, and the management is, is pretty similar. So either laparoscopic or open approach, depending on what you're comfortable with, irrigate, um, so if it's a small perforation, you know, on that jejunal side, you can omental patch, uh, just as you would a duodenal ulcer, wide drainage to so leave drains and NG decompression. The one thing I would say that's a little bit different than, than, you know, with these patients is you have to think about your feeding access afterwards. In many ways, we kind of have a, 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 you know, a bailout or a safety valve with bariatric patients who have had your standard Roux-en-Y gastric bypass who have a remnant stomach that you can consider putting a feeding tube, a gastrostomy tube in that remnant stomach. And that gives you access while that ulcer heals to be able to feed them. You know, I would especially consider this in, in any patients who are, are already having issues with malnutrition. So if, if they they come in kind of in a deconditioned state, they're already struggling with, uh, you know, protein malnutrition. Um, that's somebody I would heavily consider with really, I mean, any type of complication. If I'm in there putting in uh, durable feeding access in that remnant stomach that allows me to get their nutrition up. If they have a large, uh, you know, defect, let's say they have a, you know, they're uh, this is, you know, early post-op and they, they kind of have a, um, you know, a, a large marginal ulcer that's, that's uh, not amenable to simple uh, omental patch. Uh, you may require a gastrogygenostomy revision if you're comfortable with that uh, for these large marginal ulcers. Um, that's something I would be hesitant to do if you're not a bariatric surgeon. Uh, typically, you want to kind of get out of Dodge and live to fight another day, even if this patient is going to require a GJ revision in the future. A lot of times you're best to just patch drain um, and put in uh, durable feeding excess so the we have the perforated and marginal ulcer we just have the marginal ulcers that are causing people pain and now we got the bleeding marginal ulcer is this emergent or urgent uh depends uh, typically these aren't uh, are are not um urgent um so you know it's not like that uh that posterior duodenal ulcer that's eroded into the GDA that's that's bleeding and the patients are going down. Uh, most of the time, this is like uh, your 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 patient who has a known marginal ulcer and either they're on antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulation for for another issue. So you know, chronic seeing these patients with like kind of these oozing chronic blood loss anemia is far more common than having an acute mass hemorrhage from a bleeding marginal ulcer. And the management is, is similar to, you know, any upper GI, upper GI bleed. Um, uh, you know, obviously you want to airway protection, um, uh, typically NG uh, decompression, large bore IV access, resuscitate, resuscitate type screen, um, and all of your uh, endoscopic interventions, uh, hemoclips, FE heater probes, all those things. Um, it's, it's actually very rare for these to, um, you know, require any type of revision. 
Uh, usually you can manage these endoscopically, uh, PPI, H. pylori eradication, reverse the inciting event, whether it's NSAID smoking. Um, if, if you can get the patient off anticoagulation, great. Most of the time, these patients have conditions where the, 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 the risk of coming off of their therapy far outweighs the, the bleeding risk. So uh, with these ones, it's, uh, you know, manage it like you would uh, any upper, upper GI bleed. Okay. And then, you know, finally, this is why these patients have to see these bariatric surgeons over and over again. These refractory marginal ulcers. What do we do about that? Yeah. So these can be very frustrating. So refractory marginal ulcers, you know, these are patients that, A, you want to, uh, just like we already talked about, reverse anything that could potentially be contributing to this. Anything that's reversible. If they're smoking, they got to quit smoking. If they're using NSAIDs, they got to stop. If they have H. pylori, you got to treat the H. pylori. Uh, but you know, it's it's kind of a snowball effect. So they'll get marginal ulcers and then they'll build up scar tissue that that worsens the relative ischemia in that area. And then they get, you know, worse marginal ulcers. And so these are the patients that are very challenging, the ones that come in with these recurrent non-healing marginal ulcers. You want to make sure that if somebody has a non-healing ulcer, that you're biopsying this and really not malignancy, just as you would any other patient. So don't forget about those things. Um, but also you want to figure out what's going on here. Is this an ischemia issue? Is this a, do they have a GG fistula? So we'll talk about GG fistulas here in a minute, I think, but, um, you know, it's, it's a chicken and egg type of phenomenon. Do people have marginal ulcers that result in an inflammation that results in a GG fistula or people have GG fistulas that are, uh, contributing to high acid stimulation of gastric cells and high acid output, um, that's resulting in marginal ulcers. It's probably a little bit of both. So do they have a GG fistula? If they have that and refractory marginal ulcers, well, you're going to have to address that anatomic issue. So is it an anatomic issue, an ischemia issue? You know, what are you dealing with here? Uh, ultimately, you know, if you have non-healing marginal ulcers, this patient is likely going to need some type of revision. So that's resection of all the involved tissue of the GG and creation of a new anastomosis. If you can correct the underlying inside the event. I will say if you have a patient that's smoking and that's the reason for the refractory margin ulcers, don't revise their GJ, reverse their anatomy. Um, I've had to, had to do that a few times for patients that just refuse to quit smoking and they have refractory ulcers, they're failing their bypass anatomy. So we have to put them back um, uh, into um, uh, normal anatomy. That's something you're not gonna deal with as a, as, a, as a general surgeon, get that person to a bariatric surgeon. Um, but if you think that you've revert, you're able to reverse the inciting event, you've treated the H. pylori, you, you've, uh, they stopped smoking, um, it's either ischemia or tension or GG fistula, uh, it's an anatomic issue, you know, a revision of that GJ. Um, you know, the big question comes as to whether or not to do a truncal vagotomy. And some people, you know, this is probably a little controversial. Uh, some people would say that you do need to do a truncal vagotomy in these patients. I, I, I am not a proponent of that. Um, I think, you know, patients have, um, a lot of patients don't tolerate that truncal vagotomy uh, functionally very well. So in my mind, if you've corrected that underlying anatomic issue um, and you have a reasonable uh, uh, expectation that with a revised GJ and a fresh anastomosis that these patients are to do well, I would not do that truncal vagotomy. But again, it's probably going to upset some people that are list some listeners. Uh, we'll probably get some hate mail about that. Just know that's a little bit controversial. You know, moving on to gastrogastric fistulas, you know, these are non-urgent problems, um, but also closely related to marginal ulcers. How do we deal with these? Yeah. Okay. So a gastrogastric fistula. So this is a connection between your gastric pouch and your remnant stomach. Um, 
Most commonly, this is actually just from, uh, it's not a true GG fistula. What happened was it was a, a failure of complete um, uh, separation or division of the pouch from the remnant stomach, uh, typically, you know, high up, you know, approximately uh, at the uh, uh, GE junction. Uh, but this can cause some different problems. Uh, so a lot of times you see patients actually present with weight regain. So if you think about it, if they have a GG fistula, they're kind of bypassing their bypass um, and they're going back down that, uh, that BP limb um, and, and regaining some of that absorptive capacity. Um, so we'll see patients come in with either weight regain. Sometimes it's that association with marginal ulcer is the reason why they present with some epigastric pain and marginal ulcer type symptoms. Uh, there's a, like I said, there's a clear association with marginal ulcers. There's about 50% coexistence between GG fistulas and, and refractory marginal ulcers. So it's that chicken and egg thing, which comes first, one contributes to the other, they contribute to each other. It's a little both. Nobody really knows. So, you know, you'll see these, sometimes you'll see the fistula on uh, upper endoscopy. Sometimes you'll get, you know, uh, you'll be able to see a connection or see some air or contrast in the stomach on a CT scan or, you know, something like a, a upper GI fluoroscopy will be, help you identify where and how big, you know, the GG fistula is. Sometimes you don't have to do anything. These things are found incidentally, um, or there's a little bit of weight regain and the you know, patient doesn't really mind. You don't have to do anything for a GG fistula um, if it's just a GG fistula alone. So observation and PPI therapy is, is totally acceptable in asymptomatic cases. Uh, when it's causing issues uh, that need to be corrected, uh, this, the management is going to depend a little bit on the location. So if it's, you know, really close, I mean, like I said, the majority of these are up you know, kind of away from the GJ. Um, so, you know, up at the GE uh, junction. So you can uh, resect that fistula track alone. It will require a little bit of a pouch revision taken off. You, you want to make sure you're on healthy tissue. You're not just coming right across the fistula because you're asking for a leak or asking for a recurrence. So you got to make sure you got enough pouch that you're coming and able to resect the entire fistula tract on healthy tissue on the pouch, and as well as taking a little bit of that remnant to, to make sure you're on healthy tissue. If it's down, if it's, again, if it's associated with refractory marginal ulcers and it's down closer, uh, so either it's associated with refractory marginal ulcers or the fistula tract itself is down closer to the GJ anastomosis, that's going to require a resection with a GJ revision. So you're going to take down the anastomosis, revise your pouch, take that fistula tract, including the part that's involving the remnant stomach and reconstruct your GJ. Now that uh, kind of jumped ahead of myself there because there are some endoscopic treatments out there for closure, um, you know, some different fibrin glues, you know, clips. Those are not that effective, but you don't really lose anything by trying. So for very small um, and minimally symptomatic fistulas, those are, those are worth a shot. Okay, and that concludes part one of bariatric emergencies for the general and acute care surgeon. Uh, please join us next time for part two. Until next time, dominate the day.